Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of The World of Percy Jackson. In the previous chapters of episode one and two, Percy Jackson had been, uh, you know, he killed his algebra teacher, or pre-algebra teacher, with a pen that turns into a sword, and then, well, no one really remembers it because of something called the mist. And then he pushed Dancy Bovefit into a fountain using his weird powers that he thinks he has. And then he gets expelled from Yancey Academy, which is really sad. And then he and his mom go to Montauk and spend or spend a lot of fun time there. And then, of course, it ends abruptly because a minotaur, which is a half man, half bull, chases them until the Percy's mom takes Percy to a place called Camp Half-Blood where his dad or yeah where Percy's dad recommended or asked Percy's mom to take him to there in the beginning so Percy's mom takes Percy there and then Percy slays the minotaur but right after he squeezes his mother into nothingness and so we are here where percy just woke is like you know waking up and sleeping from a cabin that he's in and yeah without further ado on with the show chapter five i play pinocchio with the horse i had weird dreams full of barnyard animals most of them wanted to kill me the rest wanted food I must have woken up several times, but what I heard and saw made no sense, so I just passed out again. I remember lying in a soft bed, being spoon-fed something that tasted like buttered popcorn, only it was pudding. The girl with curly blonde hair hovered over me, smirking as she scraped drips off my chin with the spoon. When she saw my eyes open, she asked, What will happen at the summer solstice? I managed to croak. What? She looked around as if afraid someone would overhear. What's going on? What was stolen? We've only got a few weeks. I'm sorry, I mumbled. I don't. Somebody knocked on the door, and the girl quickly filled my mouth with pudding. The next time I woke up, the girl was gone. A husky blonde dude like a surfer stood in the corner of the bedroom, keeping watch over me. He had blue eyes, at least a dozen of them, on his cheeks, his forehead, the backs of his hands, When I finally came around for good, there was nothing weird about my surroundings, except that they were nicer than I was used to. I was sitting in a deck chair on a huge porch, gazing across a meadow at green hills in the distance. The breeze smelled like strawberries. There was a blanket over my legs, a pillow behind my neck. All that was great, but my mouth felt like a scorpion had been using it for a nest. My tongue was dry and nasty, and every one of my teeth hurt. On the table next to me was a tall drink. It looked like iced apple juice, with a green straw and a paper parasol stuck through a maraschino cherry. My hand was so weak, I almost dropped the glass once I got my fingers around it. Careful, a familiar voice said. Grover was leaning against the porch railing, looking at it like he hadn't slept in a week. Under one arm, he cradled a shoebox. He was wearing blue jeans, Converse high tops, and a bright orange t-shirt that said Camp Half-Blood. Just plain old Grover, not the good boy. So maybe I had a nightmare. Maybe my mom was okay. We were still on vacation. 
we stopped here at this big house for some reason. And you saved my life, Grover said. I, well, the least I could do, I went back to the hill. I thought you might want this. Reverently, he placed the shoebox in my lap. Inside was a black and white bull's horn, the base jagged from being broken off, the tips splattered with dried blood. It hadn't been a nightmare. The Minotaur, I said. Um, Percy, it isn't a good idea. That's what they call him in the Greek myths, isn't it? I demanded. The Minotaur, half man, half bull. Grover shifted uncomfortably. You've been out for two days. How much do you remember? My mom. Is she really? He looked down. I stared across the meadow. There were groves of trees, a winding stream, acres of strawberries spread out under the blue sky. The valley was surrounded by rolling hills, and the tallest one, directly in front of us, was the one with the huge pine tree on top. Even that looked beautiful in the sunlight. My mother was gone. The whole world should be black and cold. Nothing should look beautiful. I'm sorry, Grover sniffled. I'm a failure. I'm the worst satire in the world. He moaned, stomping his foot so hard it came off. I mean, the converse high top came off. The inside was filled with styrofoam, except for the hoof-shaped hole. Oh, sticks, he mumbled. Thunder rolled across the clear sky. As he struggled to get his hoof back in the fake foot, I thought, well, that settles it. Grover was a satire. I was ready to bet that if I shaved his curly brown hair, I'd find tiny horns on his head. But I was too miserable to care that satires existed, or even minotaurs. All that meant was that my mom had been really squeezed into nothingness, dissolved into yellow light. I was alone, an orphan. I would have to live with Smelly Gabe? No, that would never happen. I would live on the streets first. I would pretend I was 17 and join the army. I'd do something. Grover was still sniffling. The poor kid. Poor goat. Satire. Whatever. Looked as if he expected to be hit. I said, It wasn't your fault. Yes, it was. I was supposed to protect you. Did my mother ask you to protect me? No, but that's my job. I'm a keeper. At least I was. But why? I suddenly felt dizzy. My vision swimming. Don't strain yourself, Grover said. Here. He helped me hold my glass and put the straw to my lips. I recoiled at the taste because I was expecting apple juice. It wasn't that at all. It was chocolate chip cookies, liquid cookies, and not just any cookies. My mom's homemade blue chocolate chip cookies, buttery and hot with the chips still melting. Drinking it, my whole body felt warm and good, full of energy. My grief didn't go away, but I felt as if my mom had just brushed her hand against my cheek, giving me a cookie the way she used to when I was small, and told me everything was going to be okay. Before I knew, I drained the glass. I stared into it. I was sure I just had a warm drink, but the ice cubes hadn't even melted. Was it good? Grover asked. I nodded. What did it taste like? He sounded so wistful. I felt guilty. Sorry, I said. I should have let you taste. His eyes got wide. No, that's not what I meant. I just wondered. Chocolate chip cookies, I said. My mom's. Homemade. He sighed. How do you feel? Like I could throw Nancy Boba Fett a hundred yards.
That's good, he said. That's good. I don't think you could risk drinking any more of that stuff. What do you mean? He took the empty glass from me gingerly, as if it were dynamite, and set it back on the table. Come on, Sharon and Mr. D are waiting. The porch wrapped all the way around the farmhouse. My legs felt wobbly, trying to walk that far. Grover offered to carry the minotaur horn, but I held on to it. I'd paid for that souvenir the hard way. I wasn't going to let it go. As we came around the opposite end of the house, I caught my breath. We must have been on the north shore of Long Island, because on this side of the house, the valley marched all the way up to the water, which glittered about a mile in the distance. Between here and there, I simply couldn't process everything I was seeing. The landscape was dotted with buildings that looked like ancient Greek architecture. An open-air pavilion, an amphitheater, a circular arena. Except that they all looked brand new. Their white marble columns sparkled in the sun. In a nearby sandpit, a dozen high school-aged kids in satires played volleyball. Canoes glided across a small lake. Kids in bright orange t-shirts like Grover's were chasing each other around a cluster of cabins nestled in the woods. Some shot targets at an archery range. Others rode horses down a wooden wooded trail. And unless I was hallucinating, some of their horses had wings. Down at the end of the porch, two men sat across from each other at a card table. The blonde-haired girl who spoon-fed me popcorn-flavored pudding was leaning on the porch rail next to them. The man facing me was small, but porky. He had a red nose, big watery eyes, and curly hair so black it was almost purple. He looked like those paintings of baby angel angels. What do you call them? Hubbubs? No. Cherubs. That's it. He looked like a cherub who turned middle-aged in a trailer park. He wore a tiger patent Hawaiian shirt, and he would have fit right in at one of Gabe's porker parties. Except I got the feeling this guy could have outgambled even my stepfather. That's Mr. D, Mr. Gro- G- Grover, Mr. D, Grover murmured to me. He's a camp director. Be polite. That girl, that's Annabeth Chase. She's just a camper, but she's been here longer than just about anybody. And you already know Sharon. He pointed at the guy whose back was to me. First, I realized he was sitting in the wheelchair. Then I recognized the tweed jacket, thinning brown hair, the scraggly beard. Mr. Brunner, I cried. The Latin teacher turned and smiled at me. His eyes had that mischievous glint that they sometimes got in class when he pulled up a pop quiz and made all the multiple choice answers be. Ah, good, Percy, he said. Now we have four for Pinocchio. He offered me a chair to write a Mr. D who looked at me with bloodshot eyes and heaved a great sigh. Oh, I must, I suppose I must, I must say it. Welcome to Camp Half-Blood. There, now don't expect me to be glad to see you. Uh, thanks. <coughs> I scooted a little farther away from him because if there was one thing I had learned from living with Gabe, it was how to tell when an adult had been hitting the happy juice. If Mr. D, Mr. D was a stranger to alcohol, I was a satire. Annabeth, Mr. Brunner called to the blonde girl. She came forward, and Mr. Brunner introduced us. This young lady nursed you back to health, Percy. Annabeth, my dear, why don't you go check on Percy, Percy's bunk? We'll be putting him in cabin 11 for now. Annabeth said, Sir, Sure, Chiron, Chiron. She was probably my age, maybe a couple of inches taller, and a whole lot more athletic looking. With her deep tan and her curly blonde hair, she was almost exactly what I thought a stereotypical California girl would look like. 
except her eyes ruined the image. They were startling gray, like storm clouds. Pretty, but intimidating too, as if she were analyzing the best way to take me down in a fight. She glanced at the minotaur horn in my hands, then back at me. I imagined she was going to say, You killed a minotaur! Or, Wow, you're so awesome! Or something like that. Instead, she said, You drool when you sleep. Then she sprinted off down the lawn, her blonde hair flying behind her. So, I said, anxious to change the subject, You, uh, work here, Mr. Brunner? Not Mr. Brunner. The ex-Mr. Brunner said, I'm afraid that was a pseudonym. You may call me Sharon. Okay. Totally confused, I looked at the director. And Mr. D, does that stand for something? Mr. D stopped shuffling the cards. He looked at me like I just belched loudly. Young man, names are powerful things. You don't just go around using them for no reason. Oh, right. Sorry. I must say, Percy, Sharon Brunner broke in. I'm glad to see you alive. It's been a long time since I've made a house call to a potential camper. I'd hate to think I've wasted my time. House call? My year at Yancey Academy, to instruct you. We have satires in most schools, of course, keeping an eye, keeping a lookout. But Grover alerted me as soon as he met you. He sensed you were something special. So I decided to come upstate. I convinced the other Latin teacher to uh, take a leave of absence. I tried to remember the beginning of the school year. It seemed like so long ago, but I did have a fuzzy memory of there being a, another Latin teacher my first weekend Yancey. Then, without explanation, he had disappeared and Mr. Brunner had taken the class. You came to Yancey just to teach me? I asked. Sharon nodded. Honestly, I wasn't sure about you at first. We contacted your mother, let her know that we were keeping an eye on you in case you were ready for Camp Half-Blood. But you still had so much to learn. Nevertheless, you made it here alive. And that's always the first test. Grover, Mr. D said impatiently, are you playing or not? Yes, sir. Grover trembled as he took the fort chair, though I didn't know why he should be so afraid of a pudgy little man in a tiger print Hawaiian shirt. You do know how to play Pinocchio, Mr. D eyed me suspiciously. I'm afraid not, I said. I'm afraid not, sir, he said. Sir, I repeated. I was liking the camp director less and less. Well, he told me, it is, along with gladiator fighting and Pac-Man, one of the greatest games ever invented by humans. I would expect all civilian civilized young men to know the rules. I'm sure the boy can learn, Sharon said. Please, I said. What is this place? What am I doing here? Mr. Brunt, Sharon, why would you go to Yancey Academy just to teach me? Mr. D snorted. I asked the same question. The camp director dealt the cards. Grover flinched every time one landed in his pile. Sharon smiled at me sympathetically, the way he used to in Latin class, as if to let me know that no matter what my average was, I was a star student. He expected me to have the right answer. Percy, he said, did your mother tell you nothing? She said, I remember her sad eyes, looking out over the sea. She told me she was afraid to send me here, even though my father had wanted her to. She said that once I was here, I probably couldn't leave. She wanted to keep me close to her. Typical, Mr. D said. That's how they usually get killed. Young man, are you bidding or not? 
What? I asked. He explained impatiently how you bid in Pinocchio, and so I did. I'm afraid there's too much to tell, Sharon said. I'm afraid our usual orientation film won't be sufficient. Orientation film? I asked. No, Sharon decided. Well, Percy, you know your friend Grover is a satire. You know, he pointed to the horn in the shoebox. That you have killed the Minotaur? No small feat either, lad. What you may not know is that great powers are at work in your life. Gods, the forces you call the Greek gods, are very much alive. I stared at the others around the table. I waited for somebody to yell, Not! But all I got was Mr. D yelling, Oh, a royal marriage. Trick! Trick! He cackled as he tallied up his points. Mr. D, Grover asked timidly, If you're not going to eat it, could I have your Diet Coke can? Eh? Oh, all right. Grover bit a huge shard out of the empty aluminum can and chewed it mournfully. Wait, I told Sharon, you're telling me there's there's such a thing as God? Well now, God, capital G, God, that's a different matter altogether. We shan't deal with the metaphysical. Metaphysical? But you were just talking about, ah, God's plural as in great beings that control the forces of nature and human endeavors, the immortal gods of Olympus, that's a smaller matter. Smaller? Yes, quite. The gods we discussed in Latin class. Zeus, I said. Hera, Apollo, you mean them? And there was again, distant thunder on a cloudless day. Young man, said Mr. D, I would really be less casual about throwing those names around if I were you. But they're stories, I said. They're myths to explain lightning and the seasons and stuff. They're what people believed before there was science. Science, Mr. D scoffed. And tell me, Perseus Jackson, I flinched when he said my when he said my real name, which I never told anybody. What will people think of your science two thousand years from now? Mr. D continued. Hmm. They will call it primitive mumbo jumbo. That's what. Oh, I love mortals. They have absolutely no sense of perspective. They think they've come so far, and have have they, Sharon? Look at this boy and tell me. I wasn't liking Mr. D much. But there's something about the way he called me mortal, as if he wasn't. It was enough to put a lump in my throat to suggest why Grover was dutifully minding his cards, chewing his soda can, and keeping his mouth shut. Percy, Sharon said, you may choose to believe it or not, but the fact is that immortal means immortal. Can you imagine that for a moment? Never dying, never fading, existing just as you are for all time? I was about to answer off the top of my head that it sounded like a pretty good deal, but the tone of Sharon's voice made me hesitate. You mean whether people believed in you or not? I said. Exactly, Sharon agreed. If you were a god, how would you like being called a myth, an old story to explain lightning? What if I told you, Perseus Jackson, that someday people would call you a myth, just created to explain how little boys can get over losing their mothers? My heart pounded. He was trying to make me angry for some reason, but I wasn't going to let him. I said, "I wouldn't like it, but I don't believe in gods." "Oh, you'd better," Mr. D murmured, "before one of them incinerates you." Grover said, "Please, sir. He's just lost his mother. He's in shock." "A lucky thing, too," Mr. D grumbled, playing a card. "Bad enough I'm confined to this miserable job working with boys who don't even believe." He waved his hand, and a goblet appeared on the table, as if the sunlight had bent momentarily and woven the air into glass. 
The goblet filled itself with red vine. My jaw dropped, but Sharon hardly looked up. Mr. D, he warned, your restrictions. Mr. D looked at the wine and feigned surprise. Dear me, he looked at the sky and yelled, old habits, sorry. More thunder. Mr. D waved his hand again, and the wine glass changed into a fresh can of Diet Coke. He sighed unhappily, popped at the popped the top of the soda, and went back to his card game. Chiron winked at me. Mr. D offended his father a while back, took a fancy to a wood nymph who had been declared off-limits. A wood nymph? I repeated, still staring at the Diet Coke like it was from outer space. Yes, Mr. D confessed. Father loves to punish me. The first time, prohibition. Ghastly. Absolutely horrid ten years. The second time, well... She was pretty, she really was pretty, and I couldn't stay away. The second time, he sent me here, Half-Blood Hill, summer camp for brats like you. Be a better influence, he said, he told me. Work with the youths rather than tearing them down. Ha! Absolutely unfair. Mr. D sounded like about, sounded about six years old, like a pouting little kid. And, I stammered, your father is D. Immortalis. Sharon, Mr. D said. I thought you taught, taught this boy the basics. My father is Zeus, of course. I ran through D names from Greek mythology. Wine, the skin of a tiger, the satires that all seemed to work here, the way Grover cringed, as if Mr. D was his, were his master. You're Dionysus, I said, the god of wine. Mr. D rolled his eyes. What do they say these days, Grover? Do the children say, well, duh? Yes, Mr. D. Then, well, duh. Percy Jackson, did you think I was Aphrodite, perhaps? You're a god. Yes, child. A god. You. He turned to look at me straight on, and I saw a kind of purplish fire in his eyes. A hint that this whiny, plumpy little man was only showing me the tiniest bit of his true nature. I I saw visions of... Grapevines choking unbelievers to death, drunken warriors insane with battle lust, sailors screaming as their hands turned to flippers, their faces elongated into dolphin snouts. I knew that if I pushed him, Mr. D would show me worse things. He would plant a disease in my brain that would leave me wearing a straitjacket in a rubber room for the rest of my life. Would you like to test me, child? He said quietly. No. No, sir. The fire died a little. He turned back to his card game. I believe I win. Not quite, Mr. D, Mishron said. He sat down a straight, tallied the points, and said, The game goes to me. I thought Mr. D was going to vaporize Sharon right out of his wheelchair, but he just sighed through his nose as if he, got, he were used to being beaten by the Latin teacher. He got up, and Grover rose too. I'm tired. Mr. D said, I believe I'll take a nap before the sing-along tonight. But first, Grover, we need to talk. Again. But your less-than-perfect performance on this assignment. Grover's face beaded with sweat. Yes, sir. Mr. D turned to me. Cabin 11, Percy Jackson. And mind your manners. He swept him to the farmhouse, Grover following miserably. Will Grover be okay? I asked Sharon. Sharon nodded, though he looked a little bit troubled. Old Dionysus isn't really mad. He just hates his job. He's been, uh, grounded, I guess you would say. And he can't stand waiting another century before he's allowed to go back to Olympus.
Mount Olympus, I said. You're telling me there really is a palace there? Well, now, there's Mount Olympus in Greece, and then there's the home of the gods and the convergence point of their powers, which did indeed used to be on Mount Olympus. It's still called Mount Olympus out of respect to the old ways. But the palace moves, Percy, just as the gods do. You mean the Greek gods are here? Like in America? Well, certainly. The gods move with the heart of the West. The what? Come now, Percy. What you call Western civilization? Do you think it's just an abstract concept? No, it's a living force. A a collective consciousness that has burned bright for thousands of years. The gods are part of it. You might even say they are the source of it. Or at least they are tied so tightly to it that they couldn't possibly fade. Not unless all of Western civilization were, were obliterated. The fire started in Greece. Then, as well you know... As you well know, or as I hope you know, since you passed my course, the heart of the fire moved to Rome, and so did the gods. Oh, different names, perhaps. Jupiter for Zeus, Venus for Aphrodite, and so on. But the same forces, the same god. And then they died. Died? No. Did the West die? The gods simply moved to Germany, to France, to Spain for a while, wherever the flame was brightest. The gods were there. They spent several centuries in England. All you need to do is look at the architecture. People do not forget the gods. Every place they've ruled for the last 3,000 years, you can see them in paintings and statues on the most important buildings. And yes, Percy, of course, they are now in your United States. Look at your symbol, the eagle of Zeus. Look at the statue of Prometheus in Rockefeller Center. The Greek facades of your government buildings in Washington. I defy you to find any American city where the Olympians are not prominently displayed in multiple places. Like it or not, and believe me, plenty of people weren't very fond of Rome either. America is now the heart of the flame. It is the greater power of the West. And so Olympus is here, and we are here. It was all too much, especially the fact that I seemed to be included in Sharon's we, as if I were some part of, uh, part of some club. Who are you, Sharon? Who... Who am I? Sharon smiled. He shifted his weight as if he were going to get up out of his wheelchair. But I knew that was impossible. He was paralyzed from the waist down. Who are you? He mused. Well, that's the question we all want answered, isn't it? But for now, we should get you a we should get you a bunk in cabin eleven. There will be new friends to meet and plenty of time for lessons tomorrow. Besides, there will be s'mores at the campfire tonight, and I simply adore chocolate. Then he did rise from his wheelchair. But there's something odd about the way he did it. His blanket fell from his legs, but the legs didn't move. His waist kept getting longer, rising above his belt. At first, I thought he was wearing very long white velvet underwear. But as he kept rising out of the chair, taller than any man, I realized that the velvet underwear wasn't underwear. It was the front of an animal, muscle and sinew under coarse white fur. And the wheelchair wasn't a chair. It was some kind of container, an enormous box on wheels. And it must have been magic, because there's no way it could have held all of him. A leg came out, long and knobby kneed, with a huge polished hoof. Then another front leg, the hindquarters, and then the box was empty. Nothing but a metal shell with a couple of fake human legs attached. I stared at the horse who had just sprung from from the wheelchair. A huge white stallion. But where its neck should be was the upper body of my Latin teacher, 
smoothly grafted to the horse's trunk. What a relief, the centaur said. I've been cooped up in there so long my fetlocks had fallen asleep. Now come, Percy Jackson, let's meet the other campers. And that is the end of chapter six, or five, sorry. And that was such a chapter. I can't believe how Percy feels right now. I mean, seeing the his Latin teacher finally getting up from a wheelchair where he thought he was paralyzed and then turning into a half horse, half man, or as you better know it, a centaur. Man, I kind of feel bad for Percy right now. His whole life is like changing within weeks. Anyway, we'll be back after these ads. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And we are back from the ads. Chapter 6. I become supreme lord of the bathroom. Once I got over the fact that my Latin teacher was a horse, we had a nice tour though. I was careful not to walk behind him. I'd done pooper scooper patrol in the Macy's Thanksgiving parade a few times, and I'm sorry, I did not trust Sharon's back end the way I trusted his front. We passed the volleyball pit. Several of the campers nudged each other. One pointed to the minotaur horn I was carrying. Another said, that's him. Most of the campers were older than me. Their their satire friends were bigger than Grover, all of them trotting around in orange camp half-blood t-shirts with nothing else to cover their bare, shaggy hindquarters. I wasn't normally shy, but the way they stared at me made me uncomfortable. I felt like they were expecting me to do a flip or something. I looked back at the farmhouse. It was a lot bigger than I realized. Four stories tall, sky blue with white trim like an upscale seaside resort. I was checking out the brass eagle weather vane on top when something caught my eye. A shadow in the uppermost window of the attic gable. Something had moved the curtain, just for a second, and I got the distinct impression I was being watched. What's up there? I asked Sharon. He looked where I was pointing, and his smile faded. Just the attic. Somebody lives there? No, he said, finality. Not a single living thing. I got the feeling he was being truthful, but I was also sure something had moved that curtain. Come along, Percy. Sharon said, his light-hearted tone now a little forced. Lots to see. He, we walked through the strawberry fields, where campers were picking bushels of berries while a satire played a tune on a reed pipe. Sharon told me the camp grew a nice crop for export to New York restaurants in Mount Olympus. It pays our expenses, he explained, and the strawberries take almost no effort. 
He said Mr. D had this effect on fruit-bearing plants. They just went crazy when he was around. It worked best with wine grapes, but Mr. D was restricted from growing those, so they grew strawberries instead. I watched the satire playing his pipe. His music was causing lines of bugs to leave the strawberry patch in every direction, like refugees fleeing a fire. I wonder if Grover could work that kind of magic with music. I wonder if he was still inside the farmhouse getting chewed out by Mr. D. Grover won't get into much trouble, will he? I asked Sharon. I mean, he was a good protector. Really. Sharon sighed. He he shed his tweed jacket and draped it over his horse's back like a saddle. Grover had big dreams, Percy. Perhaps bigger than are reasonable. To reach his goal, he must first demonstrate great courage by succeeding as a keeper, finding a new camper and bringing him safely to Half-Blood Hill. But he did that! I might agree with you, Sharon said, but it is not my place to judge. Dionysus and the Council of Cloven Elders must decide. I'm afraid they might not see this assignment as a success. After all, Grover lost you in New York. Then there's the unfortunate, ah, fate of your mother. And the fact that Grover was unconscious when you dragged him over the property line? The council might question whether this shows any courage on Grover's part. I wanted to protest. None of what happened was Grover's fault. I also felt really, really guilty. I hadn't given Grover the slip at the bus station. He might not have gotten in trouble. He'll get a second chance, won't he? Sharon winced. I'm afraid that was Grover's second chance, Percy. The council was not anxious to give him another either. After what happened the first time five years ago, Olympus knows. I advised him to wait longer before trying again. He's still so small for his age. How old is he? Oh, 28. What? And he's in sixth grade? Satires mature half as fast as humans, Percy. Grover has been the equivalent of a middle school student for the past six years. That's horrible. Quite, Sean agreed. At any rate, Grover's a late bloomer, even by satire standards, and not yet very accomplished at woodland magic. Alas, he was anxious to pursue his dream. Perhaps now he will find some other career. That's not fair, I said. What happened the first time? Was it really so bad? Sharon looked away quickly. Let's move along, shall we? But I wasn't quite ready to let the subject drop. Something had occurred to me when Sharon talked about my mother's fate, as if you were intentionally avoiding the word death. The beginnings of an idea, a tiny, hopeful fire, started forming in my mind. Sharon, I said, if the gods and Olympus and all that are real, yes, child? Does that mean the underworld is real too? Sharon's expression darkened. Yes, child. He paused, as if choosing his words carefully. There is a place where spirits go after death. But for now, until we know more, I would urge you to put that out of your mind. What What do you mean, until we know more? Come, Percy, let's see the woods. As we got closer, I realized how huge the forest was. It took up at least a quarter of the valley, with trees so tall and thick, you could ima- you could imagine nobody had been in there since the Native Americans. Sharon said, The woods are stocked. If you care to try your luck, but go armed. Stock with what? I asked. Armed with what? You'll see. Capture the flag is Friday night. Do you have your own sword and shield? My own? No, Sharon said. I don't suppose you do. I think a size 5 will do. I'll visit the armory later. I wanted to ask what kind of summer camp had an armory, but there was too much else to think about. 
So the tour continued. We saw the archery range, the canoeing lake, the stables, which Sharon didn't seem to like very much, the javelin range, the sing-along amphitheater, and the arena where Sharon said they they held sword and spear fights. Sword and spear fights, I asked. Cabin challenges and all that, he explained. Not lethal, usually. Oh yes, and then and there's the mess hall. Chiron pointed to an outdoor pavilion framed in white Grecian columns on a hill overlooking the sea. There are a dozen stone picnic tables. No for roofs, no wall. No roof, no walls. What do you do when it rains? I asked. Chiron looked at me as if I'd gone a little weird. We still have to eat, don't we? I decided to drop the subject. Finally, he showed me the cabins. There were twelve of them, nestled in the woods by the lake. They were arranged in a U, with two at the base and five in a row on either side. And they were, without doubt, the most bizarre collection of buildings I'd ever seen. Except for the fact that each had a large brass number above the door. Odds on the left side, evens on the right. And they looked absolutely nothing alike. Number nine had smokestacks like a tiny factory. Number four had tomato vines on the walls and a roof made of real, out of real grass. Seven seemed to be made out of solid gold, which gleamed so much in the sunlight it was almost impossible to look at. They all faced a commons area about the size of a soccer field, dotted with Greek statues, fountains, flower beds, and a couple of basketball hoops, which were more my speed. In the center of the field was a huge stone-lined fire pit. Even though it was a warm afternoon, the hearth smoldered. A girl about nine years old was tending the flames, poking the coals with a stick. The pair of cabins at the head of the field, numbers one and two, looked like his and hers mausoleums. Big white marble boxes with heavy columns in front. Cabin one was the biggest and bulkiest of the twelve. Its polished brown doors shimmered like a hologram, so that from different angles, lightning bolts seemed to streak across them. Cabin two was more graceful somehow, with slimmer columns with pomegranates and flowers. The walls were carved with images of peacocks. Zeus and Hera, I guess? Correct, Sharon said. The cabins look empty. Several of the cabins are. That's true. No one ever stays in one or two. Okay, so each cabin had a different god, like a mascot? Twelve cabins for the twelve Olympians. But why would some be empty? I stopped in front of the first cabin on the left. Cabin three. It wasn't high and mighty like cabin one, but long and low and solid. The outer walls were of rough gray stone studded with pieces of seashell and coral, as if the slabs had been hewn straight from the bottom of the ocean floor. I peeked inside the open door range. Sharon said, Oh, I wouldn't do that. Before he pulled me back, he could pull me back, I caught the salty scent of the interior, like the wind on the shore at Montauk. The interior walls glowed like abalone. There were six empty bunk beds with silk sheets turned down. But there was no sign anyone had ever slept there. The place felt so sad and lonely. I was glad when Sharon put his hand on my shoulder and and said, Come along, Percy. Most of the other cabins were crowded with campers. Number five was a bright red, a real nasty paint job, as if the color had been splashed on with buckets and fists. The roof was lined with barbed wire. A stuffed wild boar's head hung over the doorway, and its eyes seemed to follow me. Inside, I could see a bunch of mean-looking kids, both girls and boys arm-wrestling and arguing with each other while rock music blared. The loudest was a girl maybe 13 or 14. She wore a size XXXL camp half-blood t-shirt under a camouflage jacket. She zeroed in on me and gave me an evil sneer. 
She reminded me of Nancy Boba Fett, though the camper girl was much bigger and tougher looking, and her hair was long and stringy, and brown instead of red. I kept walking, trying to stare clear of Chiron's hoofs. We haven't seen any other centaurs, I observed. No, said Chiron sadly. My kinsmen are a wild and barbaric folk, I'm afraid. You might encounter them in the wilderness, or at major sporting events, but you won't see any here. You said your name was Chiron. Are you really... He smiled down at me. The Chiron from the stories? Trainer of Hercules and all that? Yes, Percy. I am. But shouldn't you be dead? Chiron paused, as if the question intrigued him. I honestly don't know how about that should be. About should be. I honestly don't know about should be. The truth is, I can't be dead. You see, eons ago, the gods granted my wish. I could continue the work I loved. I could be a teacher of heroes as long as humanity needed me. I gained much from that wish, and I gave up much. But I'm still here, so I can assume I'm, I'm still needed. I thought about being a teacher for 3,000 years. It wouldn't have made my top 10 things to do for, to wish for list. Doesn't it ever get boring? No, no, he said. Horribly depressing at times, but never boring. Why depressing? Chiron seemed to turn hard of hearing again. Oh, look, he said. Annabeth is waiting for us. The blonde girl I'd met at the big house was reading a book in front of the last cabin on the left, number 11. When we reached her, she looked over me, she looked me over critically, like she was thinking about how much I drooled. I tried to see what she was reading, but I couldn't make out the title. I thought my dyslexia was acting up. Then I realized the title wasn't even English. The letters looked Greek to me. I mean, literally Greek. There were pictures of temples and statues and different kinds of columns, like those in an art architecture book. Annabeth, Sharon said, I have master's archery class at noon. Would you take Percy from here? Yes, sir. Cabin 11, Sharon told me, gesturing toward the doorway. Make yourself at home. Out of all the cabins, 11 looked, like, looked the most like a regular old summer camp cabin, with the emphasis on old. The threshold was worn down. The brown paint peeling over the doorway was one of those doctor symbols, a winged pole with two snakes wrapped around it. What did they call it? A caduceus. Inside it, it was packed with people, both boys and girls, way more than the number of bunk beds. Sleeping bags were spread all over the floor. On the floor, it looked like a gym where the Red Cross had set up an evacuation center. Sharon didn't go in. The door was too low for him. But when the campers saw him, they all stood and bowed respectfully. Well then, Sharon said. Good luck, Percy. I shall, I'll see you at dinner. He galloped away toward the archery range. I stood in the doorway looking at the kids. They weren't bowing anymore. They were staring at me, sizing me up. I knew this routine. I'd gone through it at enough schools. Well, Annabeth prompted, go on. So naturally, I tripped coming in the door and made a total fool of myself. There were some snickers from the campers, but none of them said anything. Annabeth announced, Percy Jackson, meet cabin 11. Regular or undetermined? Somebody asked. I don't know what to say. But Annabeth said, undetermined. Everybody groaned. A guy who was a little older from, than the rest came forward. Now, now, campers, that's what we're here for. Welcome, Percy. You can have that spot on the floor, right over there. The guy was about 19, and he looked pretty cool. He was tall and muscular, with short-cropped, sandy hair and a friendly smile. He wore an orange tank top, cut-offs, sandals, and a leather necklace with five different colored clay beads. 
The only thing unsettling about his appearance was a thick white scar that ran from just beneath his right eye to his jaw, like an old knife slash. This is Luke, Annabeth said, and her voice sounded different somehow. I glanced over and could have sworn she was blushing. She saw me looking, and her expression hardened again. He's your counselor for now. For now, I asked. You're undetermined, Luke explained patiently. They don't know what cabin to put you in, so you're here. Cabin 11 takes all newcomers, all visitors. Naturally, we would. Hermes, our patron, is the god of travelers. I looked at the tiny section of the floor they'd given me. I had nothing to put there to mark it as my own. No luggage, no clothes, no sleeping bag. Just the minotaur's horn. I thought about setting that down, but then I remembered that Hermes was also the god of thieves. I looked around at the campers' faces, some sullen and suspicious, some grinningly stupidly, some grinning stupidly, some eyeing me as if they were waiting for a chance to pick my pockets. How long will I be here? I asked. Good question, Luke said, until you're under, until you're determined. How long will that take? The campers all laughed. Come on, Annabeth told me. I'll show you the volleyball court. I've already seen it. Come on. She grabbed my wrist and dragged me outside. I could hear the kids of Cabin 11 laughing behind me. When we were a few feet away, Annabeth said, Jackson, you have to do better than that. What? She rolled her eyes and mumbled under, the, under, her, bed, her, un, under her breath. I can't believe I thought you were the one. What's your problem? I was getting angry now. All I know is I kill some bull guy. Don't talk like that, Annabeth told me. You know how many kids at this camp wish they'd had your chance? To get killed? To fight the Minotaur? What do you think we train for? I shook my head. Look, if the thing I, if the thing I fought really was the Minotaur, the same one in the stories? Yes. Then there's only one. Yes. And he died, like a gajillion years ago, right? Theseus killed him in the labyrinth. So, monsters don't die, Percy. They can be killed, but they don't die. Oh, thanks. That clears it up. They don't have souls like you and me. You can dispel them for a while, maybe even for a whole lifetime if you're lucky. But they are primal forces. Sharon calls them archetypes. Eventually, they reform. I thought about Mrs. Dodds. You mean, if I killed one accidentally with a sword? The fur- I mean your mad teacher. That's right. She's still out there. You just made her very, very mad. How did you know about Mrs. Dodds? You talk in your sleep. The, you almost called her something. A fury? They're Hades torturers, right? Annabeth glanced nervously at the ground, as if she expected it to open up and swallow her. You shouldn't call them by name, even here. We call them the kindly ones, if we have to speak of them at all. Look, is there anything we can say without it thundering? I sounded whiny, even to myself. But right then, I didn't care. Why do I have to stay in cabin 11 anyway? Why is everyone so crowded together? There are plenty of empty bunks right over there. I pointed to the first few cabins, and Annabeth turned pale. You don't just choose a cabin, Percy. It depends on who your parents are, or your parent. She stared at me, waiting for me to get it. My mom is Sally Jackson, I said. She works at the candy store in Grand Central Station. At least, she used to. I'm sorry about your mom, Percy, but that's not what I mean. I'm talking about your other parent, your dad. He's dead. I never knew him. Annabeth sighed. Clearly, she'd had this conversation before with other kids. Your father's not dead, Percy. How can you say that? You know him? No, of course not. 
Then how can you say, because I know you. You wouldn't be here if you weren't one of us. You don't know anything about me. No? She raised an eyebrow. I bet you moved around from school to school. I bet you were kicked out of a lot of them. How? Diagnosed with dyslexia? Probably ADHD too. I tried to swallow my embarrassment. What does that have to do with anything? Taken together, it's almost a sure sign. The letters float off the page when you read, right? That's because your mind is hardwired for ancient Greek. And the ADHD, you're impulsive, can't sit still in the classroom. That's your battlefield reflexes. In In a real fight, they keep you alive. As for the attention problems, that's because you see too much, Percy, not too little. Your senses are better than a regular mortal's. Of course, the teachers want you medicated. Most of them are monsters. They don't want them. See- they don't want you seeing them for what they are. You sound like you went through the same thing. Most of the kids here did. If you weren't like us, you couldn't have survived the Minotaur, much less the ambrosia and nectar. Ambrosia and nectar, the food and drink we were giving you to make you better. That stuff would have killed a normal kid. It would have turned your blood to fire and your bones to sand, and you'd be dead. Face it, you're a half blood. A half-blood? I was reeling in with so many questions, I didn't know where to start. Then a husky voice yelled, Well, a newbie! I looked over. The big girl from the ugly red cabin was sauntering toward us. She had three other girls behind her, all big and ugly and mean-looking like her, all wearing camo jackets. Clarice, Annabeth sighed, Why don't you go polish your spear or something? Sure, Miss Princess. The big, the big girl said, so I can run you through it with, with it Friday night. Ere as Caracas, Annabeth said, which I somehow understood was Greek for "go to the crows." Though I had a feeling it was, it was a worse course than it sounded. You don't stand a chance. We'll pulverize you, Clarice said, but her eye twitched. Perhaps she wasn't sure she could follow through on the threat. She turned toward me. Who's this little runt? Percy Jackson, Annabeth said. Meet Clarice, daughter of Ares. I blinked. Like, the war god? Clarice sneered. You got a problem with that? No, I said, recovering my wits. It explained the bad smell. Clarice growled. We got an initiation ceremony for newbies, Prissy. Percy, whatever. Come on, I'll show you. Clarice, Annabeth tried to say, stay out of it, wise girl. Annabeth looked pained, but she did stay out of it, and I didn't really want her help. I was a new kid. I had to earn my own rep. I handed Annabeth my minotaur horn and got ready to fight, but before I knew it, Clarice had me by the neck and was dragging me toward a cinder block building that I knew immediately was the bathroom. I was kicking and punching. I'd been in plenty of fights before, but this big girl Clarice had hands like iron. She dragged me into the girls' bathroom. There was a line of toilets on one side and a line of shower stalls down the other. It smelled just like any public bathroom, and I was thinking as much as I could think with Clarice ripping my hair out, that if this place belonged to the gods, they should have been able to afford classier johns. Clarice's friends were all laughing, and I was trying to find the strength I'd use to fight the Minotaur, but it wasn't. it just wasn't there. Like he's big three material, Clarice said as she pushed me toward one of the toilets. Yeah, right. Minotaur probably fell over laughing. He was so stupid looking. Her friend snickered. Annabeth stood in the corner, watching through her fingers. 
Clarice bent me over on my knees and started pushing my head through the toilet bowl. It reeked like rusted pipes and like what goes into toilets. I strained to keep my head up. I was looking at the scummy water, thinking, I will not go in that. I won't. Then something happened. I felt a tug in the pit of my stomach. I heard the plumbling rumble. The pipes shudder. Clarice's grip on my hair loosened. loosened. Water shot, shot out of the toilet, making an arc straight over my head. The next thing I knew, I was sprawled on the bathroom tiles with Clarice screaming behind me. I turned just as the water blasted out of the toilet again, hitting Clarice straight in the face so hard it pushed her down onto her butt. The water stayed on her like a sp- like spray from a fire hose, pushing her backward into a shower stall. She struggled, gasping, and her friends started coming towards her. But the, then the other toilets exploded too, and six more streams of toilet water blasted them back. The showers acted up too, and together all the fixtures sprayed the camouflage girls right out of the bathroom, spinning them around like pieces of garbage being washed away. As soon as they were out of the door, I felt the tug in my gut lessen, and the water shut off as quickly as it had started. The entire bathroom was flooded. Annabeth had been spared. She was dripping wet, but she hadn't been pushed out of the door. She was standing in the exact same place, staring at me in shock. I looked down and realized I was sitting in the only dry spot in the whole room. There was a circle of dry floor around me. I didn't have one drop of water on my clothes. Nothing. I stood up, my legs shaky. Annabeth said, How did you... I don't know. We walked to the door. Outside, Clarice and her friends were sprawled in the mud, and a bunch of other campers had gathered around to gawk Clarice's hair was flattened across her face. Her camouflage jacket was sopping, and she smelled like sewage. She gave me a look of absolute hatred. You are dead, new boy. You are totally dead. I probably should have let it go, but I said, You want to gargle with toilet water again, Clarice? Close your mouth. Her friends had to hold her back. They dragged her toward cabin five, while the other campers made way to avoid her flailing feet. Annabeth stared at me. I couldn't tell whether she was just grossed out or angry at me for dousing her. What? I demanded. What are you thinking? I'm thinking, she said, that I want you on my team for Capture the Flag. And that is the end of chapter six. Wow, this has been an amazing two chapters. And so much has happened. Like, Annabeth probably realized that Percy has something. Uh, you know, if you guys know a little bit of Greek mythology, his father going into the sea, Percy having attacking Clarice with water. If you think if you think about it, he might have some kind of superpower, and we will find out sooner or later. And this has been an amazing episode, and I hope you guys tune in for another episode next week for The World of Percy Jackson, where we read chapters 7 through 8. Bye!